So first we want to thank you for your questions, your sincere questions. And uh, also in advance say that we're sorry that we won't be able to answer all of them. Uh, you can hear, yeah? That's good. Okay. Um, so we'll read some of the questions and then also uh, we're going to summarize some that there was like theme, like many people put in questions about this theme. Uh, so to save time, we'll kind of give the theme and then say some things about that. That's hopefully uh, helpful. And you could continue to take it in like this is a Dharma talk in many parts. So one of the things that uh, happens on retreat is that actually you have this rare opportunity for this collectedness of attention and the stability of mind that allows you to hear the truth in a way that when the mind is busy and uh, frenzied, it's, it's harder to take it in. So... Um, yeah, I could just rest with this. So even though um, Will was joking that it was entertainment, uh, I will strive not to be entertaining, <laughs> but uh, to be uh, awakening. So uh, first question I take is about dreams. So the question is, do we treat dreams the same way we treat thoughts, uh, implied uh, as we practice? And maybe I'd turn this question around and say... Uh, what if we treat thoughts the same way we treat dreams? So background on this is that while we're on retreat, uh, you're in this process of purification. So you're kind of in this dharma cooker, if you will. And sometimes I even like to think of your um, zafu zabutan setup as like, and, and your chairs as like your, your burner, your cooker. You know? So you come into hall and you sit and you're just like letting yourself be cooked, you know. <laughs> And it kind of doesn't matter, you know, like you just do your best to be present and then various things bubble up and bubble off and all this stuff, good, bad, pleasant, uh, unpleasant. So your job is just to show up and be cooked in some way, right? So this this cooking process, if you will, this process of purification and of alignment, um, it happens during the day with your practice, but it also actually continues at night. So many times people will remember dreams more on retreat than uh, in their usual life. So you've planted seeds of mindfulness during the day, and that continues. So you're more mindful of what's happening, even in the mind stream at night, you could say. The reason I was saying about perhaps we can treat thoughts the same as dreams is because there's something um, helpful about the perspective we usually take on dreams. Uh, Meaning that with dreams, usually after... Uh, having a dream, people will consider like, oh, this, I had this dream, but they wouldn't identify with the dream. So it's almost like there was a visitation to the mind stream of some, uh, some episode, some story, but usually you don't believe exactly, literally, what's in the dream. So when you wake from the dream, maybe there's some emotional impression left, or yeah, sometimes some insight about something, or sometimes it was just totally incomprehensible. Uh, So in some ways you kind of hold it and then let it go. So what if you had a perception or had a view of your thoughts that arose during waking life the same way? So these are also things that visited you, visitations of the mind, not you, not yours. Uh, Who knows where they come from? Sometimes there's some helpful insight or emotional residue to be felt, um, but then you can just let it go. So you don't have to own it or uh, worry about it too much. So 
Uh, and we'll see if the other has things to say about it too. Okay. <clears throat> this one uh, arrived a little late, but I checked the bell, uh, and so it was in there. Um, why not allow the body to direct us? If the body is tired, sleep. If the body is hungry, eat, etc. Why sit through these urges? It seems as though listening to and responding well to the body is healthy. Um, there's a, a an old Zen saying, which is... Um, in the beginning, uh, mountains are mountains and rivers are rivers. In the middle, mountains are no longer mountains. Rivers are no longer rivers. Uh, and in the end, mountains are, mountains are mountains and rivers are rivers. <laughs> I won't stop there. <laughs> uh, so when we, when we haven't practiced at all, we're completely natural. Right? We're just doing what we're doing. Exactly. We're following our urges. We're going this way and that, like, without a, a thought about it or a doubt. Just going. When we <clears throat> wake up to this to some degree, we might realize, wow, the way I've been going about things, not working that well. There's all this suffering in all these different domains causing myself all this grief, just following my urges, f fleeing from what I'm afraid of. Uh, and, and craving and diversion leading me around ceaselessly. So then we might begin to uh, practice and practice sitting and not moving every time we have an urge. And we go through this process of beginning to understand what is compulsive movement, what is deluded movement, what is habitual movement, what is movement that is dictated by the cause of suffering, uh, craving. 
So this not moving phase is very important. Learning how to not move with every impulse. How to have, learning how to have some space with urges and impulses as you've been doing all week. How to be with fears and reactions and desires without just having to run away or run towards. In this phase, we're, we're not so natural. Right? This is the mountains are no longer mountains and rivers are no longer rivers. We're not just being who we're used to being. We're noticing, oh, these are thoughts. Are they worth following? Are they worth believing? Are they even true? And this, and this was present in some of the other notes, can be quite disorienting. It's like, well, who am I now? I'm not this conditioning that I used to be. I'm not sure quite who I am. And this is the phase of mountains are no longer mountains and rivers are no longer rivers. And as we gain some perspective and some freedom to not move, we can begin to listen to and to feel the natural movements of the body. We can feel into wisdom, the body's wisdom. To know when we are actually tired. As you've been feeling into this in the late night sitting, haven't you? Checking, am I actually tired? Or am I just used to going to bed? And probably in the dining hall, noticing, am I actually hungry? Or am I just scared I, I won't get enough? Yeah. And so you can start to notice, oh, I, I, I just, before I just moved, and, and now I'm feeling into something that is more true. And as we make room to not be uh, driven in the old way. And we learn how to sense what is more true. We can begin to follow the natural. We can listen to the actual needs of the body and of the mind. And then when we're tired, we sleep. When we're hungry, we eat. There's another old story about um, a, a monastery and a teacher. The, the kind of a, the great master teacher was coming to visit, so the abbot is getting everybody to uh, hustle and clean and get everything just shipshape. 
and everybody's working really hard and trying to put on a good face. I've got to impress the, uh, the higher-ups. Uh, and as the great teacher comes in, everybody's on their best behavior, robes are shining, floors are spotless. Uh, and the teacher's walking through, and as they pass this corner, they, they see a, one of the monks sleeping in the corner. And the, the abbot of that monastery is, is mortified. He says, I'm, I'm so sorry, I apologize for this lazy monk. You know, don't worry, we'll, we'll talk to him. And, uh, and the master looks at him and he says, he's the only one who understands. Everybody else is putting it on, and he's the only one expressing his true nature. (laughs) But you see, this distinction is very important between the first mountains are mountains and rivers are rivers, and the other mountains are mountains and rivers are rivers. Uh, So this one is asking uh, to talk a little bit more how to work uh, with uh, basically recognizing the truth that we're going to die, which is part of the Dhamma, uh, that all of us are going to die. And it's actually uh, one of uh, five recollections that's done in uh, some Buddhist practices in uh, monasteries. Every day is before the, um, the morning practice to reflect, uh, I am of the nature to get old. I have not gone beyond aging. I am of the nature to get sick. I have not gone beyond illness. I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond death. All that is dear to me from this, I will surely be parted. And then the fifth one is a slightly more complicated one around kama, sort of recognizing that uh, all beings are heirs to their kama. So regarding this uh, one of uh, death in particular, um, really we do have to remind ourselves because we forget. You know, we kind of go into our delusionary mode of assuming that we're going to wake up the next morning, that we're going to see this person again, uh, that we have some... X amount of years uh, left based on some actuarial table or something like that. And actually the truth is that we don't know. So they say also uh, only death is certain. Time of death is uncertain and mode of death is uncertain also. So you might imagine a very peaceful death or something like that, but we don't know. People die in all kinds of different ways at all different ages all the time. So this is the animal body we're talking about, and it's good to recognize this. And the point of this is not to make you uh, depressed or desperate or fearful, um, but actually to be attuned to this truth of our life. And that can also bring some urgency of how you do spend your time and really the quality of attention that we bring to this life uh, moment to moment as well. So there's other practices you can do uh, to help encourage yourself. So for example, when you see uh, a dead animal on the road, uh, if you're driving, uh, roadkill, 
uh, actually take a moment to recognize, like, you know, this animal has died and I too will die. So just little reminders like that. If you hear an ambulance, you know, I'm of the nature to get ill. I've not gone beyond illness. Also you can have a sense of compassion, right, for that, whoever is going to pick up in that, uh, that day, that moment, too. You can reflect if you ever see a, a old movie uh, that the, where the stars of the movie are uh, deceased. Right? Say a movie from the 1930s or 40s, maybe. Uh, you know, watch the movie, but then at the end, as you're watching the credits roll, you could reflect like, wow, the stars of this movie are deceased. Uh, the people who worked on the movie are deceased. The people who made the food for the people who worked on the movie are deceased. Uh, the people who went to the original premiere of this movie are deceased. You know. I mean, it's just like actually a, a truth that this, this life is going in this direction. And uh, yeah, it's, it's part of a helpful Dharma reminder to us uh, to recollect death. So this, uh, the writer of the question says, you know, it doesn't stay long uh, enough to explore it. So this is our uh, delusion, you know, that's very strong. Uh, so uh, it bears repeating for us and reminding, which is why it's one of these daily recollections. So if you're moved by that, you could choose to take that up in your daily practice too. You know, either all five of those or even just the one, you know, remembering your death. Yeah, many more uh, ways to work with this. And there actually are sometimes of retreats that are just about this, uh, this topic. It's a biggie in uh, Buddhist practice. So let's see if you have anything to add. Do it. (laughs) How does the Dharma relate to what we would call systemic oppression? And how can practicing the Dharma help us find our place in the struggle to move everyone forward together? Uh, it says collective liberation. Um, there are, are two kinds of right view. The uh, first is called um, mundane right view, and the second is called the supramundane right view. Okay. But the first right view uh, is extremely important. And the first right view has to do with understanding that um, in the phenomenal world, uh, things arise due to causes and conditions. And this is extremely important. So right view involves understanding this truth deeply. That's how things happen. Things don't happen out of some kind of mysterious, causeless circumstance. Okay? So when we look at the conditions of any situation, we must look to causes and conditions. Uh, the Four Noble Truths is a framing of this, right? It's looking at, there is suffering 
what is the cause? What, what are the causes that lead to suffering? You could look at the whole meditative path as an application of conditions that lead to liberation. So when we look at our society, we must look at conditions. Systemic oppression uh, is a result of conditions that are present and past. And we must understand these conditions clearly in order to take wise action. Without understanding the systemic dimension, we cannot make sense of current situations. And so, you know, So just as you're studying conditions in your own direct experience here, when you go out into the world, that is the way, that is a very wise way, a dharmic way to approach situations. It is in a sense more matter of fact. As things are not arising in some mysterious way, even though there's so many conditions, sometimes it's hard to see how is this happening? But we need to not be deluded about conditions. And there are so many conditions in our, just in this society, that um, are oppressive, that are set up in a way that is uh, unjust, and the effects are playing out very tangibly and very visibly every day. And so, if you're thinking that practicing the Dharma just involves uh, being aware of your body breathing in and out, you're missing something. The application in the world involves looking closely at conditions and working to shift causes yeah, so that we can begin to shift effects. So that may seem abstract, but it's not. Right? And so that involves, in my view, if you're looking at current situations, understanding history. Hmm? Understanding history is a way of understanding the conditions that have led to the current conditions. So you can think of the study of history as having a dharmic aspect to it. Say, well, that's not present, but it's it's a way of understanding how the present conditions are arising and a way of looking at what we can move to affect. How can practicing the Dharma help us find uh, our place in the struggle to move everyone forward together? Um, I mean, I don't want to take too much time, but uh, um, in my experience, when we begin to see deeply into the nature of our own human experience, empathy empathy and compassion are natural outpourings. It's very hard to see other beings and not feel related. So there should be 
a, and there is, in fact, I see in a natural movement toward wanting to help the collective. Because also the collective is not so separate from this being. So that's true on the level of conditions, but that's also true on the level of nature. Uh, find our place in the struggle to move everyone forward. So that's another, finding your place, so that's one aspect, right? Which is this natural movement to help others. Yeah? Or at least to even feel others and connect with others. But finding our place has to do, I think, with uh, connecting with our own mission, so to speak. And as I was talking about before, and this thing of as the conditioning falls away, we get more in touch with what is true. So then we're less in the old story of what we're supposed to do, and more in line with what is my work here on this planet, on a relative level and on a personal level. I've seen in many people a transformation happened as a result of Dharma practice, where the life reorients in a way towards something that is more my place. And each of you, I see it this way, each of you has a unique karmic constellation. Each of you has something that only you can do. And to feel into, and it doesn't have to be some big thing. It could be just how you literally are showing up day to day or what you're doing in your community. But in terms of finding your place, I think this is where this practice is, is it's very significant because sometimes we're afraid of what's true. We have a sense of what, what I want to move with, but it's scary because it, it's not supported or it's different than what I've been doing. And so that takes courage, it takes bravery, and it takes a kind of self-support, which I think practice can provide us with. It takes a kind of strength. So I'm hoping that each of you are finding your place just here as a human, in being, as a human being, and feeling into what's true on a moment-to-moment level, and as you move in the world. So, just a few thoughts. You want to add something? Yes, sometimes people ask this um, kind of question on retreat because uh, they have in their life uh, engagement with social movements, and then they come on retreat and they sit still and they wonder, like, how is this related to uh, taking action in the world, or uh, other common versions of the question are like, is this going to make me um, passive in some way, or you know, am I training to just sit here when whatever happens? So the answer to that is no. Um, and while you're on retreat, it's a particular kind of training, as I said. You know, you've entered the Dharma cooker, and we're basically kind of providing some uh, lab conditions in the simplest way possible, lead a simple life, and cut out a lot of distractions for you to begin to develop uh, awareness, insight, compassion, and cultivate qualities of mind and heart that then can serve you when you're not in these unusual conditions of retreat 
uh, to actually take beneficial action in the world. So some people might be called to be, uh, you know, permanent contemplatives, but, you know, as lay people coming to a place like Spirit Rock, uh, very few people are. So most people are going to go back in the world and engage with their family, their community, their work, uh, the news, the broader world in some way. Right? And no, you don't have to just sit there with that at all. You know, like As things arise for you, as you see injustice, as you see areas uh, for attention, uh, you, you can allow as best you can the wholesome motivations that arise to drive you to do something. So I teach some uh, retreats also for uh, activists I have over the years. And um, one of the, the areas that has been uh, difficult for people and myself having engaged in activism is like, how do you engage in trying to create social change in a positive way, whether it's around racism or on climate change, around uh, mass incarceration, around sexism, um, sexual violence, so many different things, animal welfare, um, how do you do that and not be filled with rage and hatred and uh, antagonism towards those who are clearly doing something terrible? You know? And that certainly comes up. You know, it can come up when you see unskillful action. But as best we can, uh, it's helpful to try to parse out the, in some ways, the more wholesome drives. Like, what is our positive vision for what we want society to be like? You know, rather than, I hate this, like, here's the positive version of what I want to see happen, and to allow that to drive you. Then as much as possible, in some ways, too, this is, this is a much harder one, to even understand something about the causes of the unskillful behavior that's playing out. Not because you're going to condone it or let it go on or give up the struggle, but because that can in some way, like, remove some of the add-on extra friction of hatred that's actually unnecessary and that's draining and burns you out and doesn't actually add to you being able to be effective in moving things forward. So that's why, for me, in some ways, you know, the the thing I described in the Dharma talk about, you know, seeing a lizard or something like that and, and then feeling fear and then feeling aggression is actually, for me, very insightful because, um, being a queer woman of color, like I'm usually not on the end of uh, being the dominant, larger, you know, uh, force. So in all those categories, um, but there are some ways in which I am, such as large human, small lizard, right? <laughs> uh, and we all have some way in which that's true, right? And so it's like, oh, uh, first of all, good to recognize that we're all on, you know, to different extents on different sides of those uh, equations, right? The struggles for oppression, but. It's like learning about that um, dynamic there is helpful for me to see like, oh, it's suffering actually, the, the aggression, both in the other when they are oppressing me, but also if I allow myself to become that, you know, in that struggle. Right? And I remember as a young activist meeting someone older who um, had been, uh, at the time I was working a lot in um, LGBT uh, activism, like civil rights stuff. And I met someone who was an older activist and um, they were so bitter and, uh, you know, really burned out. And I, I remember thinking, like, that is not who I want to be when I grow up, you know. Like, even for some seeming success of some movement, like, that is not what I want the world to be like. That is not what I want me and all my friends to become like. Like, that's not what I want to see in the world. So then, you know, I kind of thought about, like, well, what's a different way to go with that? So 
there's actually a whole field of, you know, it's called socially engaged Buddhism, in which people have been uh, considering and engaging with these questions in struggles all over the world, in many different Buddhist countries, um, as well as in the U.S. And uh, I was pre- previously on the board of a group called Buddhist Peace Fellowship that also uh, is an organization that is engaged in these struggles. So if you're interested in such questions, uh, when you leave retreat, you will find some good company to uh, continue to um, practice and to uh, chew on this together. So a very good question and very important for us uh, to engage with that in the world. Uh, so we have a whole category on selflessness and the nature of awareness. Did you want this first one? Or anyone? Did you want this first one or anyone? No, you go for it. Uh, can you clarify what you mean by there is no self? Who are you asking to clarify that? <laughs> do, you mean, do you mean we have a self and it's constantly changing? This one just endlessly trips people up. Yeah. It's like, uh, you know. It endlessly tricks people up because it's, there's, a, there's like a misunderstanding about it. Uh, so let's just start with the reassuring part. <laughs> okay. uh, probably the only thing you can be sure about is that you exist. <laughs> right? Like, you're having some experience now, right? That this is happening. If anybody says, you're not having an experience right now, you don't exist, you could punch them in the face. (laughs) That's a joke, but... But I mean it in a certain way, right? Like, you'd say, do I exist now? So anyway, I, I think sometimes people get really scared when they hear certain kinds of language around this. So I, I'm, I'm saying this to get you in touch with this fact that there is, there is a presence here. <laughs> okay? You, you are here. Okay? okay? Everybody feel a little more relaxed now? <laughs> Can we talk about selflessness? Okay. So the, 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 what the Buddha said was that all things are not self. There, there was never a statement in any of the texts that says there is no self. Right? So that's a, kind of a common misconception. And, and we have never said up here there's no self. 
You know, he said, all things are not self. Which means you don't find a self in any of the things that arise. Right? You, can't, you can't look at a thought and say, that's me. Can you? No, there's thoughts arising. Right? Which one of your thoughts are you? There's so many different ones. You don't even know where they come from. There's the Cat Stevens song. If I ever lose my legs, if I ever lose my eyes, if I ever lose my, right? Is that you? So there's a, there's a, a fundamental and very important, that maybe the central insight in the early Buddhist tradition, which is that all things are not self. And you've been seeing this very clearly. There's no uh, you directing it all. Right? You're not directing it all. And yet these conditions are here. Right? So in a conventional way, we can say, yeah, this is me, all this stuff that's happening. But when you look, you see each phenomena is arising due to conditions. That's an important insight. That's that mundane right view. It's a, actually a view of selflessness. Right? You don't find a core thing at the center that like, that kernel, that's where I'm located. No, we say me conventionally, but we mean this series of conditions that's changing. Even your body, it's totally different than it was when you were five. Right? Even the cells are different. So there's this state of flux and, and this, all of this phenomena which is selfless in nature. All of it is not self. And what we tend to do is we take ourselves to be this or that. This thought, this sensation, this emotion, that's what we were talking about earlier in the retreat, how we identify with momentary experience as me. And that is a cause of suffering. And it comes out as a result of delusion. We're taking ourselves to be what we are not. So that's what is meant by selflessness. Yeah? So you start taking yourself less personally. That's why it's okay to be you. You see the irony in that? When you see the selfless nature of this, it's okay to be your goofy self. Your personality doesn't go away when you meditate. Some people wish it would. (laughs) It doesn't. But you get liberated from thinking that's what you are on a total fundamental level. Yeah. So that's really good news because that's why it becomes more okay to be natural, to be as you are. Because you're not building like some kind of ultimate identity out of it. So there's one other thing I was going to say, and now I've, uh, it arose and, and passed. Let me just sit here for one second. It's totally gone. 
but this insight is something you, you're already having. Right? You're seeing selflessness playing out. And little by little we stop just gradually identifying so much with the content. Yeah. And we start to see fear as fear. And it's sort of more universal in nature. You have fear, I have fear. Right? Sometimes I'm being with my fear, sometimes I'm being with your fear. You know, if we're in relationship or just in the same community. Right? And so that's, as I think Anushka was saying the other day, like your, your, your fear doesn't have an age or a gender. Fear is fear. We can all relate around that selfless nature. And we start to see ourselves more as nature. So I think I'll stop there. Would you like to add anything? So uh, just to add on a little bit, the conditioned... um, conditioned uh, part of this too is helpful to recognize with this um, you know how we usually perceive ourselves to be some permanent independent lasting unique and controlling entity that's sort of behind who we think is like a me in there right Uh, whereas what if we're just sort of part of nature and and conditioned so what does that mean even conditioned can be a strange word um and so this is true. It's, it's easier maybe first to reflect on this with um, different objects like anatta as, uh, having to do with that which we call myself. But also there is a, a way this reflects to different objects too. So like this uh, stage that we're on is made of uh, wood, right? It's this stage podium. But at one point this was actually a tree in the forest somewhere. And then uh, before that it was a maybe a little sprout, maybe a seed. Uh, someone then cut it down, the grew a tree, cut it down, turned it into these planks. Then somewhere they were made into this um, product of this stage. Um, and then uh, Spirit Rock got them, or maybe they made them here also. Uh, so for now it's uh, existing as this stage for us to be on for the Dhamma talks and altar and things like that. And then eventually they'll start to um, decay and in fact, this time I came here, this is a new setup here. They had another podium before, which has decayed and clearly been hauled off somewhere, right? So eventually it'll fall apart and it'll get taken out to the back and thrown out and then it'll start to uh, decay even more, turn into pulp, sawdust, return to the ground, right? So that's kind of the cycle, the life cycle of this stage. And this one is in the middle. The last one I sat on <laughs> a few months ago is already in the pulp stage somewhere. Or you can consider like the, um, the soup that you had for dinner was borscht, right? Uh, now I'm going to have to guess at the ingredients, but like maybe beets, right? salt, pepper, water, probably another vegetable is there, maybe onions, right? carrots. Carrots. Okay. So at some point, uh, all these vegetables were growing independently somewhere, right? They were seeds, they were growing in different fields, through water, sun, uh, some human sweat, they grew into these plants. They were picked, also human sweat. They were transported, uh, brought to Spirit Rock in the kitchen. Some of you were involved then in the veggie chopping. Thank you very much for that. 
and then eventually they got torn into this soup. So for the, that moment, for maybe an hour, this was borscht. Right? We could call it that, certainly. That's a provisional name for it. But now where is the borscht? It's actually in this room, uh, but it's not, <laughs> it's not there anymore, right? So it's in about 100 different uh, <laughs> animal bodies, <laughs> giving you the energy to haul back up the hill and to listen to Dhamma talk. Uh, but it's gone in that form. There's no more borscht, really. But it was, and it is, and you know, it's part of this transition process of nature. So you could tell this story about anything. You could pick anything and reflect on it like that. Uh, but most importantly, in some way, that which you could uh, reflect on is uh, this being I call myself, which is also conditioned, which has also arisen due to different specific conditions. Um, and yeah, like the body certainly conditioned by the genetic patterning of your parents' ancestors, but then also conditioned by the specific weather that you lived in, the kind of work that you've done, the kind of food that you've eaten and exercise you have undertaken. Um, yeah, your own history of accidents and uh, life. That which arises in the soup of your mind, <laughs> you could say, right? So that's conditioned by the language that you grew up uh, speaking, that you think in, uh, by the concepts that you learned, uh, by the books that you read, uh, by people that you have connected with, by the field of inquiry and work that you trained in. So we think we're, oh, this is me, I'm unique, I'm uh, you know, specifically uh, in charge in some way. And you're unique, but only in the same way borscht is in some ways, right? So the same way this uh, podium is. And yeah, this process is ongoing. So now you're being conditioned also by being in Dhamma retreat. So this is actually very wise conditioning to add to the mix and through your practice and through uh, alignment with the truth in some way. Um, so sometimes this kind of reflection can help yeah, get at it a little bit too. Yeah. Your borscht nature? <laughs> Sorry. Deciding is happening. These things, we're running out of uh, time in the conventional sense. Um, (laughs) And in the literal sense of we're dying, we're closer to death, (laughs) Anushka said. There's a question here that I, I think would be just good to say something about, which is about, because a few of you have mentioned in some of the um, 
the interview groups, the group meetings, a feeling that I was referencing earlier about the some of the old patterning kind of getting quieter or falling away and feeling fear, feeling a sense of being disoriented uh, and, 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 and a fear about like, what is going to keep me oriented in this time, you know? Um, and, and I was speaking before about a, a, these in-between periods that are very real where it's not like... Um, the old falls away and there's something totally newly formed just taking its place, right? There's a, there are these periods in practice where some of the old conditions dissolve and there's like this in-between phase which is awkward and uncomfortable and sometimes scary. And it's really tempting in those moments to grasp onto anything, yeah? to grasp onto the old way or to grasp onto the first thing that comes along that has a structure to it. This can happen in phases of life where you don't know what you're doing. You know, and it's so intolerable to not know that you grab onto something. Uh, It's not always the thing. Uh, So just say a couple things. One is, there is something about learning how to get comfortable and be in these spaces of unformedness. That's its own territory. And sometimes when something doesn't have a structure, we don't know how to be with it because it doesn't seem like anything. But that's a, a state, a state of unformed. So, I want, so I'm saying that so you can even identify it as something. And conscious that I'm in this and I don't know, but I'm staying awake and aware. So that's one thing. But another, th- another piece that occurred to me as I was looking at this question is the precepts that we took when we first came and that we've been living by, they are a kind of protection. When you don't know how to orient and which way is up and you're kind of the precepts can actually be a structure that at least keeps you in line with the Dhamma. So sometimes that kind of structure can be helpful. Oh, not killing. (laughs) At least I'm not doing that. (laughs) And not taking what is not given. Well, this is the basic kinds of non-harming. Well, I'm, and that's, I'm also, in all of the things I'm not sure of, that's something that I am sure of. I won't be doing that. Hmm? Not speaking in ways that um, cause divisiveness or harm, certain kinds of harm. Yeah? We're just paying attention to your speech. Hmm? Uh, and that doesn't mean not telling people things that are hard for them to hear. That's, that's, that, I wouldn't call that harming, even though it may be unpleasant for the other person. But, so paying attention to your speech. Not engaging in sexuality and sexual activity that causes harm or chaos for yourself or others. These are protections for you. Uh, 
not taking intoxicants. Sometimes in a place of instability, we can reach for things that seem soothing or, you know, or seem cohering. And, and that's just the time not to do that often. So I just wanted to mention that, that as we wait sometimes, as T.S. Eliot says, wait without hope, because hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Right? Hope would be hope for the thing that was, the past thing. He says, wait without love because love would be love of the wrong thing. So, so I, I, I just, I love that line. Uh, that's from, I think it's from the Four Quartets. Yeah. Um, but in those liminal periods that we must go through in order to come out the other side into the new world, into the new shape as conditions form, yeah? the precepts can be a protection. Yeah? And I think you can think of them that way. They're both a training and a practice and a protection. They can, you can orient around them. So. The, um, there is a, a joke about our practice insight meditation that um, when you start practicing in the beginning, you gain a lot of insight, but that most of it is bad news. Uh, which is a little bit rel- relevant to this uh, this question, you know, that you start to discover, like, wow, I'm actually so unmindful, or, you know, uh, yeah, there's much more uh, violent, aggressive urges within me that I recognized, or, um, you know, I space out a lot of the time, or, uh, like, any number of things that you can discover about yourself that you had before been pushing away or ignoring or something like that. And uh, in the seeking of truth and alignment with truth, um, this is part of the process. So your honesty with yourself, your courage to face this, uh, is an essential element in transformation. And it's, it's definitely uncomfortable at periods, but reflecting on the universal nature of all these things, as Will said, and the selflessness of them, you know, the conditioned nature of these patterns can sometimes help uh, to not take it so personally. And also to know that transformation is possible. You know, change is possible. Uh, so we can cultivate uh, wholesome qualities. We can cultivate uh, different patterning. Or at least we can create some space between our usual habitual reaction. You know, something that happens in the habitual reaction. But uh, I'll also warn you that a big part of practice is also knowing theoretically what you would ideally be up to. <laughs> or what your ideal reaction would be, and observing as the exact opposite uh, happens. (laughs) So sometimes this can feel painfully like watching the slow motion, uh, you know, car crashes of your own uh, emotional, physical uh, actions going on. But if you can keep the, the perspective of like, okay, before I was doing this same pattern, engaging in this, um, but not being aware. And now let me be acutely aware of the suffering of this. And through that, allow me to learn. Like, may I learn and may I uh, develop wisdom and compassion for myself and others. One of the most um, compelling piece of advice that I got from um, one of uh, 
our teacher is Joseph Goldstein at the end of the first uh, long retreat that I sat there, three-month retreat at um, similar center on the East Coast, Insight Meditation Center to this one. Uh, so he passed along the advice from his teacher, uh, the Dhamma protects those who protect the Dhamma. So you can keep that in mind and, you know, the precepts can be your guide and overall the Dhamma can be your guide, you know, as best you can in your practice, in your life and uh, taking that intention, doing the best you can with that is uh, all you can, be, can ask of yourself and beneficial for both yourself and for the world. Maybe we can sit together just for a moment.
connecting with this breathing body. Connecting with the sincerity of our heart and our practice. We can let go of any of the words that were confusing or unclear. Resting in that which you know. Just with the direct experience of this animal body, this mind, this heart. Appreciating our beautiful opportunity to be together here on retreat, spending our last evening together in practice. Oh, thank you. And um, we're going to have a half an hour walking period now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.